Let's pray together. Now, Heavenly Father, as we open the scriptures, as we always pray that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts, the eyes of our understanding to behold Christ and to learn of him. Jesus, that you would open up the scriptures to our understanding as only you can so that we could not just hear, but do and be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've begun, begun studying the most intriguing book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, the apocalypse, as we call it, the unveiling of advanced history. And this great mystery of the future of the human race and planet Earth, something that is on so many minds today. Here in the opening verses, as we've been seeing, the Apostle John has already blurted out the end of the story. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn and wail because of him. So shall it be. Amen. So 66 books, 40 different God-inspired authors written over a span of 1,800 years, one message. He's coming. I like the line C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, when the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. And the unveiling or the revelation given to John meant for us and the Christian church to know just speaks of just that. Uh, yes, there will be great distress on the earth for those who have resisted and opposed God and his truth. But those who love the Lord will have great joy. And on that day when he appears, we shall see him. Uh, as the Apostle Paul tells the uh, Thessalonians that they, we will marvel. The word in the Greek is thaumanzo. And it means to be struck with wonder, filled with amazement, or astonished with admiration. Can you imagine seeing the face of God? What will that be like? Well, um, back in 1999, Bart Millard, when his dad passed away, his Christian father, he was inspired to write a song that you know of, most of you. It's a song about what it might be like standing in God's presence to see him. I can only imagine what my eyes will see when your face is before me. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence or to my knees? Will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? Well, I can only imagine. Well, no more I can only imagine for John because he's about to see the face of God and then he's going to try to tell us what he saw the best he can. But before he does that now, starting in verse 9, he takes a couple verses uh, for a third and final introduction of sorts. So before he starts describing this wonderful vision of Jesus and the visions that follow, John wants to kind of reintroduce himself 
connect a little bit with this with the Christians that he's writing to and let us know a little bit about the surrounding circumstances as to when he got this vision so let's finish up the chapter we'll be discussing it as we go from verse 9 it, it kind of follows a nice logical flow if you're taking notes and you like that structure number one is context of vision so he's going to tell you about the context of how the vision came Two, content of the vision. He's going to give you the vision of Jesus. And then thirdly, the consequence of the vision, his response and Jesus' response to that. Verse 9 through 11. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard him. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So here we are at the first point, the context of the vision, uh, the surrounding circumstances of how John came up, uh, upon this wonderful, inspiring revelation. So like any good communicator, uh, John's given his readers some necessary context. First of all, he says, as your text says, it's me, it's John, it's your brother your brother in the Lord. What is he saying? In all humility, he's saying, I'm just a regular Christian like anybody else. Here's one of the three disciples who spent three years with the word became flesh, God in a human body. He's been up on the mountaintop where the Lord showed him a little bit of what he's about to see in the fullness, but a little bit of his radiant splendor back in the day when he was on earth. He was the only disciple that, that uh, was at the cross. The last words Jesus spoke to a human being were to him, your mother, John, one of the three, saw Jesus place his hands on dead people, raise them. He's the only surviving disciple now. He's outlived them all, which was kind of the rumor that he was going to uh, survive until Jesus' return. And so when God uses somebody like that, we tend to elevate them and, and think more highly of them than we ought. And John says, this is John. I'm a regular Christian. I'm your brother in the Lord. That's who God is using right now. And after writing John, the Gospel of John, and First John, and Second John, and Third John, maybe he thinks that's it. The best days were over, but for the life of a Christian, the best days are always ahead. And here he is in his 80s or 90s even. And now he's going to get the vision of all visions, the end of the world and the second coming, and the millennial reign of Christ. And he says, it's John your bro, 
That's amazing to me that these men walked in such humility. One writer said, the apostles aren't afraid to acknowledge their God-given spiritual authority. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he writes. John, the elder. But when it comes to life in the body, in the fellowship, they lead in love and serve in all humility. It's me, John, your brother. And he says, here's a paraphrase, I'm your companion in all of this. I'm, I'm partnering with you. I'm not above you. I'm not on the Isle of uh, Bermuda. I'm on the Isle of Alcatraz because like you, I'm suffering. And so here's the paraphrase I share with you. Uh, what is the lot of all Christians having to suffer in a hostile, Christ-rejecting world and having to patiently endure that's kingdom life together. And so uh, what's going on? He's saying, you know, I'm mocked, you're mocked. I'm rejected, you're rejected. I'm persecuted, you're persecuted. <clears throat> now our sufferings, you have to keep in mind the framework that, that this vision is given to seven churches where uh, Domitian, the Roman emperor, has declared himself Lord and God. And anybody who didn't agree with that would be, could be executed. You'd have all your property taken. It was against the law to, to do what we're doing today. The way we suffer, really, and how we relate to this book is a lot different than they or anybody in a, in a, a Muslim country, let's say. Our emotional, uh, our suffering, rather, is emotional, spiritual, more social, like Lot, who had to put up with living in what the Bible calls a perverted culture, and that caused him daily agony. He said he was, King James, vexed in his spirit. It means to be crushed. That's the kind of suffering uh, modern-day American Western Christians can understand. We don't lose our homes or our properties or our lives, but we can understand what it means to be marginalized and mocked and uh, persecuted in that way. And so he says, in fact, I'm on the island of Patmos uh, at the time of the vision. Here's a slide in relationship to mainland and the seven churches. It's... Uh, Patmos there, you can see it, there it is, Tw 25 miles off the coast there, this is modern day Turkey, it's actually a Greek island right now, but really for all intents and purposes it's the modern, it was the back in the day Alcatraz, and uh, where you exiled the the prisoners, especially the ones you never want to see again. <laughs> and so they just tried to stop John in so many ways, and then the, he got uh, banished to this desolate, rocky, barren. Uh, the place is known for its marble, and so I have a picture of a slide of that. This is what it looked like, and, and he was banished there to work in the mines, working out the marble there. This is where he is facing the sea 20 miles off the coast there of Turkey. Uh, for what crime was he banished there? Did he steal something? Did he murder someone? Well, he says in verse 9, guilty as charged, it was because of the Bible and because of sharing my faith in Jesus. 
you know, I was loving God and loving others and helping people and living right and telling people the truth. And so that's why they want to kill me. Does that make sense to anybody in this room? Loving God, doing the right thing, and telling the truth. Off with your head. We're going to send you to a nice little vacation resort in the, in the Mediterranean. <laughs> yeah, so they ship John off to uh, Alcatraz so they don't have to deal with him. But, you know, I like what Paul the Apostle said when they try to shut him up. This is my gospel, he said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. So how ironic, they ship him off to Alcatraz and uh, to shut him up. And the Lord says, John, okay, so you can't preach here very much. Here's what I want you to do. Get a pen, kid. I want to show you something. Because you can write, and you can see, and you can send. So the word of God can't be stopped. The Holy Spirit cannot be silenced. Nothing can prevail against the church. There is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 30. And you can't stop a man from worshiping God. Verse 10 says, you know what? It was Sunday when this all happened to me. It was the Lord's day, and I was in the Spirit. Now, what else would we expect? It was the first day of the week. It's the Lord's day. The Lord's day got dubbed as the first day of the week. Sunday was called the Lord's day since the resurrection was on a Sunday morning. And the first two times Jesus appeared to his disciples were both on Sundays. And then the day of Pentecost fell on a Sunday. The church was born on a Sunday morning at 9 o'clock, as Peter tells us. And so the gathering of the people of God on Sunday, the first day of the week, if John can't go to church, church can come to John. And he says, I was in the spirit. It was Sunday. What did you expect me to do? To be be in here just hoeing away and just thinking, where is God now? And despairing and doubting and believing the lies of the enemy. Look at you. We're the promises of God. He promised this and he promised that. And now a disciple, look at you, banished, alone, miserable, in pain, isolated. No, he says, it's Sunday and I'm going to be in the spirit. And all that phrase means is he's in worshipful posture. He's got his hands raised. He's got his heart open. He's got his mind focused. He's got centered. He's Worshiping and adoring Jesus Christ. And in that mode, the Lord gives him a vision. I mean, he might be like Paul saying, whether it was in my body, out of my body, I don't know. I just know that the Lord gave me this vision. And it was on a Sunday, and he was in the Spirit. You know, folks, there's nothing God rewards more than when we adore him, And respond in faith when our outward circumstances are contrary. 
Just know that is the time when God just unleashes some of his biggest revelations to you, his greatest intimacies, and his most phenomenal blessings come when in everything logically should say you should despair and walk away and complain, and instead you worship him. Paul and Silas, Acts chapter 16 beaten with rods and thrown into a dungeon. And about midnight, they say, hey, what do you say? Let's belt out great is thy faithfulness. And so they belt out a hymn for all the prisoners to hear. And God's just like, are you kidding me? After all of that, you're going to see great is thy faithfulness. And he just rocks the whole place with an earthquake. The doors get busted open wine and the chains on everybody, not just theirs, fall off. The prisoner comes running, the guard rather, comes running in and sees the prisoners. And he's ready to kill himself because he knows what this means. They're going to kill me. I'm going to get this over first. I mean, the authorities for letting the prisoners get out. God just can't take it when we do things like that. He just sets us free. You want to be set free, or do you want to be poor me? I guess God forgot about me. <laughs> All my life, this has happened to me. <laughs> All right, moving on. I saw a lot of elbows flying. <laughs> All right, first came, let's get to the vision. First came the sound. So John gets the audio before the visual. He says, I heard something. Uh, before I saw something. And here's verse 10, uh, paraphrased for you. I heard a voice, not an ordinary voice. It was rich and regal and commanding and resonating like a trumpet. The voice commanded what you're about to see. Write it all down and send it as a message to these seven churches. And we discussed those seven churches and why out of a thousand churches, probably that he picked seven the lord is taking seven congregations seven the number of completeness the full complete picture of the good and bad qualities the problems that the churches face uh, which would be ideal for instructing god's people of all time that's the sense of the seven churches this is what's going to be going down and from pentecost to the rapture these are the issues my people will face. So right to the seven churches. So John has told us now, this is where I was. This is why I was there. This is what I was doing the day it happened. And this is what I was instructed to do, to write about this vision. Now here's what I saw. And now here comes really the only physical description of Jesus in the Bible, but still it won't tell us exactly what he looks like because there are a lot of symbols involved. Let's look at that now as we move to point two, the content of the vision, verses 12 through 16. So John turns around, I turn around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. 
His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in its brilliance. So, number two, we have the... uh, a vision, the content, and it's a doozy. The symbols are employed because, you know, words are going to fail when you take a look at God in his glory. So he's saying, I'm worshiping. I hear this incredible voice behind me. It tells me to write down what I'm about to see and tells me who to send it to. And then I turn around and I see the most glorious sight uh, ever seen by mortal eyes, the glorified Jesus Christ. So um, here in these two verses, 12 and 13, we get incredible insights, three really good ones right off the bat. So the seven churches represent seven uh, by seven golden lampstands. Now, here's a picture of what is probably in John's mind, the menorah, uh, the lampstand that was in the, the t- tabernacle, the tent of meeting first, and then moved to the holy place in um, the temple. This represented that Moses was commanded to build there in Exodus. It represented uh, Israel. God using Israel to bring his light and his truth to the world. Now, they failed at that. In 2 Chronicles chapter 36, this goes away. They take it, the enemies of God take it to Babylon, modern-day Iraq. It's gone. It never comes back. They don't have it. Zechariah 4 says that one day that will be restored, and Israel again will reflect the glory of God in the millennial kingdom after Jesus returns. Until then, they're on what one commentator called a timeout. They are not reflecting the truth of the glory of their Messiah. Who is? The seven churches. Not those seven churches, the seven, meaning the fullness of the church. So the church is where God is in the middle. Now, instead of Israel, it's the Gentile church that represents him to the world. And he is in the middle of his church, capital C, universal church. All the local congregations that love and know him are considered the church. And so that, thank you for that. And that's what he's talking about there. What a good picture. I love this quote here. The lampstands in themselves aren't the source of the light. It's a great picture for the church shining God's light. Jesus is the source of light and life. We don't produce those things. We need the oil and the spark. We just point the way in the darkness to the true light and source of life. Now, Jesus' placement in the middle of the congregation of the churches is pretty important, and what he's wearing is important as well. The first thing Jesus told us, where two or three gathered together in my name, there I am in the middle of it all. So there he is. He's saying a true church is defined where Christ is at the center. It's all about him. 
He's the head of the church, the Lord of the fellowship. He's the object of our worship. It's his will we seek to do as we come together to be strengthened by whose word? Not the pastor's word, not Calvary Chapel's word, not some institutionalized word, but the word of Christ through his word. It's his honor we live for, his glory we seek. I mean, we sing to him. He's here, gathered with his people. He says, I'm in the middle there. It's just a beautiful, awe-inspiring concept that when you come to church, know that every time there's a church meeting, the Lord Jesus Christ is present in the midst of it all. He sees all. He knows all. He's present, and he's glad to be there. What I find fascinating is is that this is where God is seen in the earth. Where is Jesus? He's standing where? In the middle of the churches. Where is Christ on earth? He's doing his work on earth from where? From what vantage point? From the vantage point of the local congregation in which he is center. That's an amazing elevation of what church and the congregation is all about. People just have such a low view of church, but the scripture's view of church is this is where Christ is on the earth doing his work in his people and through his people. That is where you find the risen Savior. And what he's wearing is important as well. He's dressed in an Old Testament priestly robe here. And so really what he's doing there is saying, hey, he's the high priest. He is your mediator. He is the one praying for you and interceding for you. He's the mediator. So you see him in the middle of the congregation. What is he doing there? Number one, he's looking to help you. The, the, the high priest was, was your best friend. When you were in a jam with God and you were feeling guilty or out of sorts or attacked spiritually, the, the high priest is where you went because he alone could make things right. He could show you how to get right with God. And this high priest is God himself who was the very offering for your sins. And so he's not only the high priest, but he's the lamb on the altar as well. And so we run to him and he's in the middle of it all. Just a beautiful thing. Those three things, very important. And now up close and personal description of Jesus and I like what Ray Stedman says before we look at Jesus in all his glory. He says, the attempt here by John and the Holy Spirit is not so much to tell us what Jesus looks like, but this vision through symbols speaks more of his role, the role that he's fulfilling at the moment, his character, aspects of his attributes that he particularly wishes to stress. As regarding his physical appearance, We'll see that magnificent sight soon enough. You know, for me, I have a problem picturing what Jesus looks like and, and kind of identifying with an image. I don't like any artist's rendering of how he was when he was on earth. I just don't connect. Most of them, some of them are pathetic or, or just unappealing and just weak. I can't connect there. And then even when I look at this vision, an artist's rendering of what you're about to go through step by step, 
it, even that you can't relate to it because he doesn't really look like that. These are images. I mean, he's not going to have white hair necessarily because this is an image. He won't have white hair as much as he's not going to have a sword coming out of his mouth. So these are images meant to tell us, yes, he's looking at him, but this is who he is and what he does and his attributes and character. And so we're just not going to know what color his hair is and his eyes and the shape of his face and whether he's tall or short or however we do that in heaven. <clears throat> I don't think there is such thing as short in heaven. <clears throat> but I know there's bald in heaven because that's perfect. Right? All right, here's the sevenfold description of Jesus. Head and hair white as snow. Now, first of all, I just thought, wow, what a difference from the cross. <laughs> Straggly, matted, hair with blood, tangled up, disgusting. He says, let me start from the top. White as snow is, white as wool is a heat. Hebrew idiom, we don't use that, but, but just so here's the image, the images of holiness, which is a word that just describes moral purity. And, and also the white, the ancient of days, the wisdom of the ages, the eternal uh, divine nature of God. That's what's going on there, just radiating from him. Secondly, the eyes ablaze with fire. This is especially significant to those who are being persecuted. What is it saying? It's saying, you know, don't mess with him. Do not mess with this guy. He's got fire in his eyes. You know, I often quote that scene from Chronicles of Narnia where Lucy hears that Aslan happens to be a lion. And Lucy is upset by that. And Lucy says, well, to Mr. Beaver, is he safe? And, and Mr. Beaver just bust, busts a gut just thinking that is the most, and he calls her cheeky. You know, what a cheeky thing to say. Uh, of course he's not safe. He's the lion, but he's good. So for those persecuting the church, for those who are resisting the truth of God, he's not safe. His eyes ablaze with fire, meaning he can see everything. I mean, those same kind eyes that search out and find sinners in the gospel. Mary on the streets, Zacchaeus up in a tree, Nathaniel under the fig tree. But regarding evil that opposes him and his people, there's an all-consuming fire to deal with in those eyes, a fire that knows everything. Hebrews 4 and 13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Uh, thirdly, his feet like bronze glowing in a furnace as if it were fired up to white heat in a kiln. Now I think, you know, once those feet had the serpent's fang fastened upon them, piercing his heel as the prophecy goes. 
but now those same feet glow as metal in a furnace, bronze meaning judgment in the Old Testament, and those same feet that were bruised by the devil now are ready to trample over him and crush his head, as the scriptures say, and all things associated with him, and unfortunately, those souls that align themselves in unbelief and disobedience with the devil himself. He's ready to judge. And before we think, wow, you know, that's such a uh, fierce description of our Lord, just know this, the bronze stands for judgment, but it also, the altar in the tabernacle and the temples made of bronze for the sacrifice place, and who was upon that? So yes, he's ready to trample those, but all those he had already died for. And if you're foolish enough to resist the free path to eternal life that he has already said, listen, I love you enough to die for you. But if you don't want that and you want to come to me and say, I don't need your stinking sacrifice, I'll come to you on my own terms, then watch out because those feet are hot and glowing and ready to trod. That's what this means. A voice, number four, like the Niagara Falls, many waters. You know, try arguing with Niagara Falls. Can you imagine at the base there and trying to say something? I don't know what you would try to say, but it's God's voice. His voice can raise the dead and create an earth and chase a legion of demons. Number five, the right hand holds seven stars. And in verse 20, it tells you what that means. The seven stars are the seven angels. And apparently every church has an angel. Uh, angels, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14. Angels are sent to minister to those who will inherit eternal life. Peter, the apostle, had an angel who helped him in his time of need. The Lord Jesus was ministered to in the Garden of Gethsemane by an angel. So it doesn't really surprise me so much that as we all have angels, and 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says that we worship among the angels, that angels are here in the congregation. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that the, son, the women needed to, to show respect. Why? Because of the angels in the midst of the congregation. So it doesn't surprise me. And, and why, do, why do I believe the seven stars mean seven angels? Because he's telling you, uh, let me tell you what they are. So he wouldn't give you another symbol for defining a symbol. Does that make sense? All right, we'll move on. Thank you for saying yes. Along the same lines now, we have number six, from his mouth a sharp sword, which is kind of a funny picture, but, you know, it gets the point across that his word is powerful and it's the weapon. You know what? When he comes and he appears and the world has surrounded Israel, his people, and they will know Jesus then, and they will seek to destroy them, and they will rage even against him in his appearance. <laughs> He won't need weapons and guns. There won't be a long battle. There won't be a struggle. He will simply speak. Lastly, his face. Indescribable brilliance, his countenance. 
He's unapproachable. I like what one writer said, Jesus was the most approachable of all men when he was here the first time. Children, lepers, the rich, the poor, the religious, the sinners, they could walk right up to him and be well-received. But no longer the case, he has risen, he has ascended, he's been exalted to the highest place, and only those who have been changed into his likeness may approach without fear. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, who lives in unapproachable light, the scriptures say. So here's a synopsis. John's saying this. All right, there I was. It was Sunday. I was worshiping. You know where I was. You know why I was there. You know what I was doing. And boom, the trumpet voice goes off. I turn around and I see this God-man standing in the center of his church, praying for them, protecting them, standing with them. From his form radiates majestic goodness and eternity, wisdom and moral purity. Life and light flow from him, fierce determination against evil in his gaze. He stands ready to conquer evil and judge unbelievers. He stands ready to help and save all who believe upon him. He's the almighty, everlasting God who rules the universe by his word and by his will. That's what I saw, and when I got a glimpse of it, I thought I was going to die to our third point. So we've got our context, we've got our content and now the consequence, only a couple verses left, a few comments that will be done. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and he said, don't be afraid, I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. We're going to stop there because verse 19 really belongs to introducing the first letter, which is next chapter. And so we'll pick that up next week. But here's where the thought ends. John's response now. Fortunately, John was in the spirit because if he weren't, he would be dead. Um, no mortal sinful human being can stand in God's holy presence and live to talk about it. The Bible tells you that very clearly. Uh, he's simply scared to death. When other men of God in the Bible receive such a vision, they do the same thing. It's, it usually says, all the blood drained from my face. Daniel. I fell as a dead man. Ezekiel. That's what happens. I mean, I, that's understandable. I think anybody here would just say, yeah, if the Lord suddenly was here in all his glory, all of us would be in one place. It wouldn't be, would I dance with you, Jesus, or dance for you, Jesus, or with you, or in awe of you, be still. No, we'd be pretty much dead, right? And uh, that's how it goes. But it'll be a different story when he appears for you or for me as a believer. First Corinthians chapter 15, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. The trumpet will sound and our perishable bodies will be changed and transformed into bodies which can never die. Our mortal bodies will be transformed into immortal bodies. That happens at the trump, at the resurrection, or 
for that matter, you get a spiritual body. We all have spiritual bodies. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us that when you die as a believer, you leave your body and you are present with the Lord. In that capacity, you are no longer aware of your sinful nature. You are no longer conscious of your sin. Therefore, there's nothing to be afraid of because that is what brings the fear, fear of punishment. First John chapter 4 and verse 18, there's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Therefore, when we are in his presence, we are perfected in love. There will be no fear. You will not want to die. Of course, you will already be dead. <laughs> so you won't want to die because <laughs> that's already done. But you won't be filled with fear and dread. You'll be perfected. So what is, John, uh, what is Jesus telling me? He says, stop, literally in the Greek, stop fearing. And what heartwarming reasoning. He says, John, stop fearing. I'm here. It's me. And then he describes himself for the reason to stop being afraid. He says, it's me. I've got some pretty good reasons here. Uh, number one, <clears throat> Jesus touches him. The same right hand that holds the seven stars and all the churches and the world touches him. The right hand means favor, protection, strength, and security. So with his right hand, he touches and restores him. And that's where any of our lives gets restored, through the touch of Jesus who is present in every church service, every single time, no matter what you're feeling. He's here to touch and restore and place his right hand of favor and protection upon your soul. If you would just get in the spirit and open up and say, Lord, I need your touch. The one who created heaven and earth to touch your heart, your mind. What a privilege. So he tells him, uh, number one, I'm not your enemy, I'm your friend. Number two, I'm the first and the last, which is what Jehovah or Yahweh in Isaiah 44, 6 says. Another divine uh, passage here that rather speaks of Jesus' deity. Jehovah God says, I'm the first and the last. And then Jesus says, hey, I'm the first and the last. Because he is. The first and the last means I control everything. Everyone lives in the boundaries I determine. Number three, he says, I'm the living one. I'm alive forever and ever. In other words, John, listen, don't be afraid. I'm always available for you. There will never be a moment when you need me that you can't find me because I'm always alive. There's no gaps. I'm never away from you. I'm always with you. I'm always alive forevermore. And then he says, I became dead. In the Greek, it says, I became dead. It doesn't say I died because God can't die. He, he willed himself to die. He became dead so that we wouldn't have to. So he said, you don't have to be afraid. I became that nasty thing and I destroyed it. And look, I'm alive forever and ever. I will always be available 24-7 for into eternity for you. Stop being afraid. Look at me. Finally, he says, and I hold the keys, man, to death and Hades. Death is our physical enemy. 
Hades or hell uh, is our spiritual enemy. He says, I'm in charge of both places. Both forces bow to me. No need to fear, John. I got this. You got me and I got you. Now get up and don't be afraid. Nothing to fear in life, nothing to fear in death, nothing to fear on the earth, nothing to fear in heaven. Those seven churches under the gun need to get a good look. Look who's with you, the letters are saying. Look who's on your side. Look past the persecution and see me. Now I'm going to show you how it's going to end the whole world and how I will vindicate my name and my people my word, and my cause on this earth. I'm about to show you, but first let me show you the most important thing, me. Put your eyes on me. The point of this end of the world scenario isn't the end of the world scenario, it's me. You keep your eyes focused on me, and therefore you'll be well braced for what is to come. The point isn't so that you know all about the Antichrist and the beast and the 666 on their foreheads and the stars falling from the sky and the mountains falling into the heart of the sea and what appears to be a full-on nuclear holocaust. He says, you know what? Don't fear this book. Look to me. You're in me. I'm in you. I'm alive forever and nothing can separate you from me. Let me close with this thought. Let's say a storm is predicted to come in the Midwest, as they usually are. And some little kid's afraid. He hears the forecast. Man, things are going to get scary, Dad. And Dad says, let me show you something, son. He opens the door to where he's been working on this basement, uh, but like not any ordinary basement. He shows the boy the reinforced steel and, and, and the depth and the strength of the fortified storm cellar. And it's very impressive. And he goes down and inside there are generators and blankets and clothing and shells and shells of food and barrels and barrels of water and the communication devices and computers and electronic everything and the the place is just like, wow. That kid can say, oh, okay, let the storm come. And he says, not only that, son, I'm there with you. Now let's look on the radar and see the storm coming. It's okay. Snuggle in right here. Let's watch. The kid's not afraid. The kid's not afraid. That's the point of revelation to us. We've got a great God. There's nothing to fear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love, your promise that keeps our hearts. We love the verse that says that you shall keep in perfect peace those who stay their minds upon thee. May we do that even this morning by the help of Jesus, who is here among us. Amen.